Um, so in news today, uh, I haven't really been like banging on the news feeds. This week has been pretty busy for me. Um, I've had a couple of speaking engagements and uh, some board meetings. So I've been kind of swamped. Um, what I do find really peculiar is they asked me last year, you know, when the lockdown started, what do you see being one of the biggest issues for security uh, going forward, working from home? And hands down, I said VPN. Uh, VPN is going to be a big target. So critical flaws are reported in Cisco VPN um, February 5th. Uh, so they've rolled out fixes for multiple critical vulnerabilities. So I would expect to see that kind of on a constant basis, probably a lot more often than, than what we're seeing now. Um, and then, of course, you have the Chrome browser zero day uh, that Chrome is trying to catch up with. Um, and it really just gets kind of slow. You have um, critical bugs found in popular Realtek Wi-Fi module for embedded devices, which is kind of disturbing for me because some of the boards for Raspberry Pis, um, they use Broadcom, but Realtek is also another uh, chipset that, that they like to use. Um, so... Maybe be careful when you're buying Raspberry Pi. Make sure it has the Broadcom um, adapter instead of the Realtek. Uh, anyways, uh, other than that, um, let's see, calendar-wise, I have uh, the 4th and 5th of March booked for Cybersecurity 2021 being put on by Media Ops and Security Boulevard, who also picks up our podcast. Um and that's going to be uh, working, working from your haunted house, uh, basically taking people through a guided tour of exploiting everything in their home, uh, in their office, and their kids' gaming systems and whatnot. Um, so then that's free. I'll post a link to that in the Discord and on social media. Um, other than that, nothing like huge. Um, it's been kind of a quiet week, uh, which is usually a, can be a good and a bad sign as to what's to come. Um, there's going to be a launch coming up pretty soon of a platform called Jenny. I know Drew knows what that is as well. Um, but a friend of mine named Tanesh uh, runs a company and we had a meeting and it's going to go live very shortly. Um, so look for good things from Jenny. Jenny basically is a platform that you can put in the type of cybersecurity service you need. And Jenny will tell you all the big players and here's the data. Um, here's some screen scrapes and videos, and here's how we rank them among the other 5 million cybersecurity providers. Um, so it's, it's a way to sift through all the nonsense and whatnot. Uh, anyway, so let's get started. So if Cham and Drew and Trammy can open their video and their microphones, we'll be good. What? Hey, what's up, Drew? How are you, buddy? Really good, really good. Good, good to see you, man. Um, so, How's it going, Drew? so tonight, can you tonight guys is, hear me? Yeah, yeah. Hello. Yes. Perfect, perfect. So tonight awesome. is Cham's first night as co-host. Um, so look for more of this to come uh, with Trammy and Cham, Kristen, Ryan. Um, we're going to be sharing the duties of, of hosting because. Nobody wants to hear me drone on forever and ever. So it's time to bring some, some new people yes, into it. Yes, we do, Mike. We do. <laughs> so, Drew, man, it's, it's really awesome to connect with you again. I think um, 
how I'm how I came into your circle was through Ryan King. Um, I yeah, so, yeah, our sales director Ryan. I think uh, there's an introduction there. Uh, I think we did technically actually meet many years ago at an ISSA event. Um, but yes, Ryan's Ryan's been uh, good in introducing us over yeah, over yeah. more recent times. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he, he's he's uh, he's pretty good. Um, and the ISSA event was was very interesting. I think that was the first time. I had given a live talk on a boat, like an actual boat on water. <laughs> so yeah. only in the Thames. Only in the Thames. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So Drew, um, talk to me a little bit about who you are, introduce yourself, um, the company you're with, uh, and just tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, sure. So yeah, Drew Perry, CEO of Tiberium. Uh, we are a uh, managed security services provider. Uh, and we are on a mission to automate as much cyber operations as possible. So I've been, uh, well, onboarding customers to what I call traditional MSSPs for at least a decade or so now. And uh, maybe in a bit, we'll talk about more of kind of where I've started out in this industry and that side of things. But I've um, spent a lot of time doing this sort of onboarding process, getting customers from, you know, big banks, governments, law firms, all sorts, big and small, um, trying to outsource their SOC services, uh, get them onto platforms, and it's just been slow, it's clunky, you get false positives, problems. <laughs> so uh, exactly. with Tiberium, we originally started out as uh, more of a traditional consultancy and reseller. Uh, and about a year ago, we shifted into managed security services because I saw you know all these problems and I thought, well, we can fix that. <laughs> or I can fix that with, with our team. Um, so we're focusing on one, automating uh, the onboarding process, speeding that up rapidly from a traditional six-month process where you, you know, develop parses, connectors, get your logs in, develop use cases, all that boring stuff, uh, problematic stuff, and speeding that up into as slicker process as possible uh, by using bots, by using ARM templates, by using scripts, by using things that have been in place for quite some time, but no one's really pieced them together and kind of run with it in that way. So we speed up that process and then use the power of sort of cloud native technologies and automation to um, free up our analysts, uh, to free them up to not have to do sort of traditional L1 tasks, L2 tasks, uh, get some, you know, logic app, get some scripts in there to get the context, get enrichment, do all that fun stuff uh, so they can be freed up to do the important things, which is actual threat hunting, you know, actually detecting compromise in our customers' environments. So uh, that's our core service. Um, but at the end of the day, we also do a lot of other bread and butter stuff as well. So traditional pen testing, red teaming, social engineering, you know, the stuff that keeps us in the game and that keeps it, keeps right. it interesting instead of pure blue team. So that's kind of us in a nutshell. Cool. That's awesome. Um, I've got a question. Go ahead, Jeremy. <laughs> right. All right. Um, so Drew, you mentioned that uh, you're shortening that onboarding process, which used to mm -hmm. take six months, right? Um, and you're not always, but often. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So tell me, tell me you're taking a six month process and leveraging automation. How much are you reducing that time? So you said it's drastic. So are you bringing that down to like a month from six uh, months down to actually, a month? Well, it depends on if you could say a full live service, uh, but we've taken that six month process down to, to six minutes. <laughs> 
Oh my God, that's amazing. No, that, that's that's just marketing speak. That's a bit that's a bit crazy. Um, technically, we can we can roll out um, a a Seam platform. We use Azure Sentinel and quite a lot of the Microsoft stack, and we can roll that out um, with our CI/CD DevOps pipeline in about six minutes. But yeah, the reality is it's it's probably um, days instead of six months. You know, to actually then turn on all the right connectors, get the right log sources in do a little bit of tuning uh, and actually start being able to um, do your threat hunting, threat hunting with a decent data set to, you know, at least validate the integrity of a customer customer environment very quickly. Right. Um, but yeah, it's, it's nowhere near the traditional six months because one most important thing is, is we're not having to sit there and develop parses for everything under the sun. You know, our technology and platforms that we use is leveraging the good work of still legacy vendors like um, ArcSight and Splunk and all of that, uh, where everything's in common event format uh, for on-prem or for any cloud log sources. It's just APIs these days. So mm -hmm. it's just click, 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 done. Or actually not even click, run the script, done. Um, so that's, that's the focus there for that onboarding process. Gotcha. Speed is essential because... Why wait? You, know, you, you can't wait months and exactly, months. Exactly, right. Especially you're taking something from six months down to the days. So that's that's super impressive. Um, so you're leveraging a lot of automation. Tell me what process of that do you actually, does the automation kind of save uh, time? And, and what do people in your company actually like focus on? You know, so yeah, you're so, automating so a lot of that. Yeah, so we've got two core areas of the business from the technical side. So one is on uh, build and research and development. So constantly pushing the service forward. Um, as we're, uh, I've already said their name enough times, uh, Microsoft partner, uh, we're, we're sort of pushing the boundaries of what you can do across their stack and um, pulling all that together. So we've got the build area of the business, um, constantly developing new scripts, new techniques, new uh, ways of speeding other things up uh, to be even faster. Uh, and then uh, we're building out the pure threat hunting side. Uh, so the proactive side, the not sitting there waiting for an alert, actually looking for badness. Uh, and those are kind of the two core areas that we're going with. So, so not the traditional model of, you know, junior analysts and, and that side. It's, it's pure research, development, build, and uh, experience threat hunters. So let's let's talk about threat hunting really quick. Um, when you say that it frees up the analysts to do more of the the threat hunting, are we talking just like the basic threat hunting? Or are we going like weeds deep into systems and, and log files? And it depends. Uh, it depends on one the maturity of the environment we're working with, and mm -hmm. two if the uh, engaged with us in incident response mode because we also get involved, you know, post incident detection to step in, you know, do the forensics, do the threat hunting where maybe there's been attribution. So maybe we know something about who's in the environment through our threat intelligence sources or um, through their blatant mistakes. Mm -hmm. um, so, it, 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 yeah, it really um, depends. So there's that piece and then there's the um uh responding to you know vulnerabilities or the latest threat actors ttps or whatever and just right. validating environments that way so there's again the two arcs for that side as well gotcha gotcha so um threat intelligence fees you guys provide the your own threat intelligence feed or do you 
suggest third party yeah, well, or feeds i mean feeds are feeds are not the best <laughs> well, right. i would avoid using the term feeds um we uh we use misp as one of our um, open source um sort of tip platforms uh and then we've got a number of different um feeds as we call it there into right. there um but we've got a few uh, other partners and sort of um uh well there's the government feeds and then there's the private feeds as well that we that we receive for that but it's more around attacker techniques and staying on top of that uh to to right. not rely on you know indicators of compromise and that stuff with a, a very short half-life for that by the time you try and search for it in your environment right. it's been burnt and the attackers have moved on from your infrastructure so why bother hunting for that yeah the hash <laughs> always changes so you know it's hard to keep track of that especially when you're Absolutely. dealing with like five you know commands or five five networks and then chasing down one hash it changes every 24 hours on those I yeah, or even, you know, stuff on the domain side with DGA type, you know, constant shifting there. So, I mean, why yeah. why burn our cycles hunting for, yeah, indicators where we could look for actual behaviors in an environment? Like, why is this user all of a sudden logging into these machines with this token or, or whatever? You know, there's a big um, focus these days on uh, threat actor groups and... Uh, I don't want to say it because everyone keeps talking about, you know, like Solowins and all the Minecraft stuff and all that. Everyone's going after APIs. Everyone's going after tokens. Everyone's going after privileged accounts. Yeah. So it's really the behavior of those accounts that we're looking for within the environment. Yeah. And I mean, attackers have gotten to the point where if, if they really want to conduct like a serious APT, you're probably not going to detect them for a while. So, you know, mm. looking for those, those zero days or those IOCs uh, usually is kind of, monotonous and, and usually yeah. doesn't bring up any new actionable intelligence it's mostly you know this happened in you know two years ago mm -hmm. what have we done to patch it up so what what we try and do is we use the term we're trying to force the attacker's hand so we we harden our customer environments as much as we can you know mm -hmm. you know along um good gpos you know locking things down you know all those fundamentals patching stuff that's actually not easy to do always right. um so we go through that during our onboarding process with our customers lock everything is down, down as much as possible mm -hmm. so then you're forcing the hand of the attacker if they're in the environment to maybe use some techniques that are a bit more noisy to right. increase your likelihood of detection and that's yeah. that's kind of our methodology there kind of kind of, kind of smoke them out of the holes really um mm. you know and I've, I've seen it on a couple of levels so have you guys interfaced with many companies who have AI already in the network? Like let's say a dark trace platform or. Uh, I've got pretty strong views around dark trace because I've, I've come across let's, them. Let's go there. Years ago. Let's go um, there. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> years ago. And I will admit I have not used it in, in, you know, about 12 months or so, but it used mm. to be too noisy and it used to produce um, uh, alerts where it would constantly be tuned down, 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 down. Mm -hmm. And you would end up with something at the end where you couldn't explain the exact reasons behind it. And there wasn't that visibility of why this alert's fired. The context was missing. Uh, and it would be tuned so far down that you wouldn't get anything valuable out of it. That might've changed. I don't know. Um, but yeah, AI stuff, I don't know. We talk about automation and AI, but mm -hmm. yeah, really, we're just dealing with scripts. automation.
yeah. and logic. <laughs> yeah. So I have my own thoughts about AI. Um, I wish they would stop using the term artificial intelligence because it's not really true AI. Mm. Uh, but what it, I found with like deploying AI, like in a network and it coming back behind it and trying to correlate everything, whether it be, you know, funneling logs into an API or trying to pull things into something like, you know, dark trace, um, really you're limited to like, let's say you want to get good data from a network. You're really limited to, to how that, that network functions now. Um, when you go and drop AI into it, guess what? All the bad actors and all the misbehaviors going on seems normal. So we're just mm. going to go with that. Mm. Um, th that's, that's kind of what I was curious if you'd ran into anything like that, that may have set you back as far as like a challenge to, to really get the environment to, to produce actionable stuff. Mm. Well, yeah, no, because we're not putting in that type of AI. I mean, the, as far as we'd take it uh, would be across, um, so with Sentinel, Defender, those types of technologies, you've got um, the fusion capability there where it's looking across multiple alert sources. It's classic correlation at the end of the day, right. but with a few more chains in the process. Right. And Microsoft try and call that AI, but really that, again, is just correlation. Mm -hmm. um, where we are looking to use what I would almost start to call AI is uh, around using uh, GPT-3. Mm -hmm. uh, so we are part of the beta program for that with OpenAI. And we're using that as part of our um, sort of chatbots and our interaction side for that, you know, like our NLP language type mm -hmm. interactions. Um, but what we're discovering with it is we can't use that for, it's obvious, you can't use that for real time anything because it's right. trained on a data set pre-2017. Pre. Right. So um, that's as close as we're getting to AI type stuff at this point uh, yeah. beyond uh, yeah, marketing terms of what is traditionally scripts, automation, logic, and uh, that type of thing. Yeah, I think a lot of people look at, at, when I think of true AI, I think of Bayes algorithm, right? The predictive analysis based on previous behaviors and, and a pattern. Yeah. Um, but not a lot of companies actually employ that. Uh, even some of the big AI companies don't really have that algorithm understood or implemented correctly. They implement parts of it, but not the entire algorithm, which you know, is really not true AI. So going back to your journey, um, I'm sure you get asked this as many times as I do to, Take us back to when you got into cybersecurity and what made you go that direction. I know we have a lot of new people on. Um, we have a couple yeah. uh, lectures from a university. So th that kind of information would be totally useful. Yeah, I mean, it depends how far back you want to go. I mean, we could go. You, you we, take us. We could go all the way back to 1989, you know, when I got let's, my first Amiga 500. Let's go. <laughs> let's, go. let's go back to 1989. <laughs> right, so uh okay so yeah my parents i think they read an article in the local newspaper so i'm from a, a small new zealand town called wanganui uh it was home to uh the wanganui supercomputer which was uh the country's first attempt at building a national crime database so that oh, was nice. a collaboration of ibm and the new zealand police and they built this giant center there uh which attracted quite a lot of sort of talent to do with the local polytechnic and all of that which is pretty cool um and i think there were these like um advertisements saying you know get this 
come do this course. My parents saw this and were like, okay, well, we've got a, a three-year-old and the computers, these computer things are going to be something about the future. So uh, we ended up at the end of that, they took this course and we got an Omega 500 and I got, got onto that. And uh, that's where it kind of all began. And what was cool is locally, there was quite a large sort of bulletin board community. There was a lot of freaks uh, around uh, that mostly all got arrested at the end of the day. Um, but, you know, there was there was interesting knowledge about. Um, so I don't know exactly where the path from pure computer interest in IT would have diverged off on to the cybersecurity side. Um, but, yeah, that was, that was kind of the seed of it all. Um, so, you know, going down that path, uh, had the Amigas, got a, got a um, you know, like a 486 with Windows on it, all that, and then... This guy came around and he put uh, he put Red Hat on my 486. And I was like, right, I've got Linux. <laughs> this is awesome. <laughs> how long did that take? Uh, well, yeah, there was at least, you know, how many disks. I don't know how many disks we had to go through to install that, but it would have taken quite some time. Um, and then I was reading all this stuff about having to track down getting a shell. And you have to get a shell to, to do hacking. And I was like, how do I get a shell? And... Uh, I didn't realize all this time I had Bash, I had Red Hat, I had a shell. <laughs> and all I had to do was with my modem then start dialing into places. So, you know, we'd use um, things like Hyperterminal and all that to um, dial into each other's machines. That was great. We'd start transferring files around. Uh, and then from there, I just really got into like file sharing and collecting and downloading and all of that um, and sort of varied off into the piracy world uh and in new zealand at the time you know you couldn't get content because there was one large telco which was a monopoly no one had internet and uh it was a struggle so we used to start building networks so obviously um if you can't get it you'd build it yourself so we started running cables to you know neighbors houses we started doing all of that and then I kind of built this network and was hosting this um, uh, file sharing service on there, which was based on DC++ back in the day. Uh, and I got to this point, and I was probably about 14 by now, and I was like, right, um, I need faster internet. So I ended up moving to a city purely to get like to Wellington to get fast internet so I could host the server and um, uh, grow it and expand it and download more and you know all that turned into we would have wars with other competing groups oh. where we would have to protect and defend our server and all that and i learned a lot of you know back then it was traditional ddos stuff and all that um, right. and i thought okay well i need to do some studying i need to get a job so i did a diploma in uh network engineering which i never finished because i went the traditional path of certifications so mm -hmm. n plus a plus mcsa ccna all of that uh, did some job experience uh, with a local IT company. Uh, first job I remember being tasked with on my first day when I was 17, I think, was this server here. Um, it runs Linux. It's got two CPUs in it, and we need to get an SMP kernel running on it so it can take advantage of it. I was like, great, okay, cool, I can do that. <laughs> and um, six months into that, or a year into that, um, I ended up getting a job in a security operations center nice. uh, for Unisys. And it was the first um, uh, first security operations center in the Southern Hemisphere. So from there, uh, that's where my actual cybersecurity career started. 
with that sort of analyst view in a sock uh, and then going going from there. Um, and from there, uh, ventured into, you know, red team, blue team, social engineering, a lot of that. And at the same time, um, you know, doing all the traditional hacking stuff like on ICQ and sending each other files and getting people's IPs through Telnet because everyone was on modems then. And uh, yeah, it was just, I'm in. I want to learn as much as possible. What can I do? Uh, it, was, it was a very interesting time. <laughs> Yeah, it's a. Uh, I look back at those times, and and there was no laws regarding nope. cybercrime, nope. so really, if they just didn't like you, they could take you to jail. Um, oh yeah, and, you did. You, you you got into the wrong place at the wrong time, mm, and yeah, I mean, yeah. back then, that's the first thing I learned was people reuse passwords, yeah. and everyone who was um, on this network that I ran because we could do a lot of sort of layer two type attacks, man in the middles, that type of thing. Mm. We could intercept a lot. So therefore we had a lot of visibility. We could collect everyone's passwords and then everyone who was on this, some of them were in some pretty interesting positions and interesting companies and yeah, they reuse their passwords. Mm -hmm. So then you get onto the router of the place where they work. And then from there you set up a green tunnel back to you. You can do man in the middle and yeah, so yeah. on and so forth. Yeah. So, um, those are the days. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for real. Now technology makes it really easy because you have like the uh, the Netgear VPN routers that people are putting in small businesses that they leave the VPN completely wide open and True. don't change password. You go and set, set up your own VPN tunnel and welcome to the company. <laughs> You're, um, in. <laughs> <laughs> You're in. You're in. Here's our onboarding process. <laughs> right, right. Um, so yeah, like it, I, I think our, our journey has probably started somewhere around the same time frame. Um, listen to the BBS stories. I, I definitely remember playing with BBSs and, and getting my hand smacked for it. Um, but it was a lot of fun, you know, just to hear the tones and yeah. then see the response on the monitor that you're actually getting a prompt is, was my rush. That's what, that's what started the rush of all rushes. And then you start talking about yeah. shell code and, and reverse shells and, that brings on a completely different. I think the uh, biggest rush was, you know, you get that, you get on, you're chatting with someone mm -hmm. and then, you know, you could, you could run wind nuke and just knock them offline. <laughs> you're like, and you see the them power. drop offline, you're like, yes, I'm a God. <laughs> so lame, but it's so fun. <laughs> yes. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And IRC, like the bots and egg drops and net splits. And, yep. you know, if you can cause a net split, knock everybody off the IRC channel, that, that was pretty big back in the day. Um, so, Anybody have any questions for, for Drew? Cham, so Cham, is, Cham went to Westminster University and majored, majored in cybersecurity and is super sharp. And she kind of represents our people coming into the industry and knows a lot of the lecturers in London. Um, and we've had a couple of ventures ourselves as far as like companies and services and, and stuff like that over in Scotland and uh, London. So Cham, do you have any questions for Drew or comments? Um, no. No? Okay. I'll, I'll just point one thing out in the chat there that Ryan's put up about the Wonga sure. computer center bombing. Yeah. Um, so that was the only case in New Zealand's history of a suicide bomber. Um, so that was in direct response to the computer center um, police crime database where really? a local anarchist punk um, disagreed with the fact that this center was there right. uh, and strapped um, some explosives to his chest, went outside it and um, yeah, damaged yeah, we... the entrance way, uh, but also ended his life. 
Uh, but yeah, it's the only case in New Zealand's history, which is so, crazy. <laughs> we had we had one, I guess it was Christmas Day in Nashville in front of the AT&T switching center in Nashville. Um, and what happened was a guy was like conspiracy theorist, 5G, thought 5G was going to kill everybody. So decided to blow up the entire switching center, um, which caused mass damage for broadband and cellular. Mm. And yeah, it's another one of those crazy events, but I don't think we'll see the end of it with all these kooks out there thinking 5G is the end of the world. So mm. that and pandemic and all that good stuff. So Trammy, what do you have as far as Tiberium and Drew and Yeah, and... I've got I've got some questions. Don't you worry. <laughs> um, <laughs> so so Drew, you kind of told us about your background in cybersecurity. So tell me about Tiberium. Like how did you get it started? What was it like? What were some of the struggles that you ran into um, starting your own company? Yeah, so as I said, we started off originally uh, as a pure consultative-led business. Um, so it was mostly myself um, delivering the consultancy services. Uh, so yeah, that the struggles with that is scalability. So you only yeah, have so many hours in a day, and yes, you can only yes. get support from so many contractors and people around you without you know mm. growing in a sense of um, either getting funding or doing it with others so this is the difference now um where uh i now have you know a, a dedicated team around me we've recently taken on investment we have a new board of directors uh who have experience in sort of growing and scaling and running managed security services but yeah the traditional struggles were just around the hours in the day um but what i loved about that was the variation of the type of work that i was getting exposed to and 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 my, my small team uh, back a few years ago was getting exposed to. Um, so we got to do some very, very interesting sort of instant response engagements where we're dealing with um, some very sophisticated attackers and some very high profile companies. Uh, that was great. Um, you know, we've done some very interesting sort of social engineering engagements where I'm lucky enough to you know, be able to sneak into places and do those kind of hybrid attacks where you're putting in devices physically to try and compromise that way. Um, but yeah, we got to a point where all that was well, well, good and fun. But, you know, my real passion was uh, actually helping companies sort of more protect them uh, themselves and be able to detect and respond more rapidly. So hence the, the sort of shift to more managed services approaches. Um, yeah. And yeah, we've, we've had the, the service up and running since uh, uh, early last year. Mm. Um, but yeah, challenges, uh, it's been an interesting time because we talk about our onboarding process being sped up and our, our response capabilities sped up because uh, we've built some interesting integrations where we can do stuff with sort of the click of the button, sure. But also the cycle of the, our customers' needs they're happening much faster with, you know, the world we're working in, the death of the perimeter, all that stuff. Um, those are the challenges. How are we dealing with these rapidly evolving um, sort of cloud environments with um, stuff constantly changing there, which actually makes it more exciting. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's finding the support and getting the right people around you. And when you have the right people around you, um, you know, it's all, it's all go. It's so, a lot easier. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so do you go in and, and assess a client's uh, current SOC infrastructure and advise how to make it better or maybe even try to lift some of that responsibility? Yeah, uh, both. So we either work with um, companies that 
don't have a sock uh, and, and we become their sock or if they do uh, exactly that so we review uh, we augment and then we enhance so we add on our capability um, to either act as an escalation sort of partner for that pure instant response or we review mostly sock environments that are using those legacy logging platforms you know the splunks the arc sites the logarithms i won't name too many technologies but you know the ones yeah. that um uh, need a lot more feeding and watering uh, and a lot more high you know highly skilled engineers to run because they're not sort of cloud native that that type of thing um but yeah if, if a customer does have a sock yes we we step in with our long you know decade of experience in that space to to enhance it as much as possible so do you find it more challenging to onboard a customer that already has a SOC team or one that's still small and doesn't have anything so um yeah I mean it is more challenging because it comes with some inherent um uh, the mindset of what it should or could be what it is um they don't necessarily know what it could be um you know they the it's been either really bad or problematic. Some environments we go into and, it, and, it's, and it's great. They're incredibly mature. They've got great detection response capability um, and they just need that helping hand to you know, maybe get some of their cloud log sources some visibility there. Um, but yeah, it is easier, I guess, less challenging going into sort of greenfield environments, those smaller customers that have not had access to this level of capability before. That's, that's the more exciting piece. Yeah, that's, gotcha. that's, a, that's a big piece. So one question I had as far as, you know, augmenting socks and, and you know, maybe taking that pressure off of people um, goes back to education and goes back to the job market, right? So you're automating the level one, level two functions to, to make things easier for companies. Are you also finding a way to take those level one and, and level two responsibilities from that sock? and maybe provide that level one, level two opportunity to somebody from the outside trying to get into cybersecurity. Yeah, absolutely. So we are taking what we would traditionally hire in that space and saying, okay, where are your real interests? You know, is it in development? Is it in scripting? Is it in, um, you know, improving automations? Is it building bots? You know, it's, it's, it's just a shift of, I'm not going to hire someone to sit there and look at a screen and look at tickets and close out alerts. Right. Uh, you're going to be hired to maybe look at that and go, how can I automate that? How can I, fix, you know, how can I um, do something more interesting with this? So it's just shifting the talent to focus on other areas instead of wasting humans skills and creativity and focus um, and focusing it in these other more productive areas yeah i'm sure you've seen like some of the other podcasts where i talk about how we don't have a, a, a real talent gap there's no talent shortage it's just the way that we're hiring for positions i think and the way that we're positioning yeah. people within companies that maybe might not be as adequate or uh, streamlined as possible but you brought up a really good point that and i haven't heard any other company say this is that when they take responsibilities away from company a to give them more focus on the more important things, those people or those positions take that and roll that over into something functional for your own company and put that back out there. To me, that's a huge way of giving back because it seems that in our industry right now, we have a whole lot of, of 
mid-level jobs that they're calling entry level, mm. but you have to have five years experience and, and know like 500 different principles, which someone getting into industry does not know. Yeah. Um, so I applaud you guys for, for taking that and looking at that from like, you know, a newcomer's point of view and putting that back out there, because I think the more jobs we can put back out for those creative minds, the better our companies will be. Um, yeah. And I think it's also focusing on, um, well, yeah, I look at myself and I go, okay, I never finished my diploma. I never went to university. I did these certs and I, mm-hmm. I, I thrived because of my passion for what I was doing. I just love exactly. it. You know, it's what I do. Yep. So I'm looking for anyone who is genuinely really excited by this stuff and really passionate about it or shows any form of interest and they're in, you know, <laughs> that's, that's the main thing. Who cares about experience? Who cares about, um, what certs you have now or anything like that you know yeah. if you're creative interested and and, and want to do it then i know yeah i know quite it. a few people <laughs> i could send your way that uh you know when you have opportunities let me know because it, i know some talented people that are really struggling because the market is just it's so top heavy right now mm. um, so let's uh go to questions really quick Yanni yeah said, ryan had a great question that I, I saw. Um, and I was going to say, so um, he had a question about how do you stay competitive in terms of like what you offer in the market? Because um, there's about 150,000 MSPs and MSSPs out there in the, in the global market. So mm-hmm. um, what, what are some things that you guys are doing to set some of your services apart? And I have a feeling automation is going to yeah, be I mean, part that, of that answer. That's, that's, that's the differentiator. It's the speed. And not only, not only that, it's our approach to our service and collaborating. So we're not, um, I keep doing this every time I do it on a call. We're not at arm's length. <laughs> we're not at arm's length MSSP. You know, we're not sitting there at a distance, sending you an email, sending you a PDF report. We integrate into your team and collaborate. Um, and we use, you know, collaboration tools like Slack and Teams and that mm. to really be part of your existing team. Um, that's, not a, you wouldn't think that's a unique differentiator, but actually it is because MSSPs have this model of, you know, oh, you know, we'll just send this, send this alert to them. They'll deal with it. But mm-hmm. when we're part of their team and we've got that trust there, um, that works very, very well. Um, you say, you know, there's this huge amount of MSPs out there, um, but MSPs, a lot of them, uh, like, okay, we'll, we'll jump on this new, you know, we'll jump on Azure Sentinel and start offering a security service around that. But you, you can't just jump into it and do it. You know, you know, you don't have the experience of the threat hunting skills. So they don't have the experience of knowing um, the world of cyber. Uh, they know the MSP market. Um, so that's, so then the MSPs come to us and we partner with MSPs to go, okay, well, we'll do that service for you. Um, but yeah, in the MSSP world, it's really just our collaborative mm-hmm. approach, the automation approach, uh, and the focus on actual proactive threat hunting versus flooding false positives, flooding alerts, and not taking that responsibility to be part of your customer's team, really. Gotcha. So there was another question that popped up. Um, I wanted to ask really quick because this is pretty pertinent. Colin asked, um, what are some interesting experiences that you've had running your own business? Also, what made you decide it's time to start my own business? Or was it even a thought? It wasn't. Well, so since Tiberium's been around for a number of years and, and 
the other models of consultancy, um, the original starting point was just to be able to get those new experiences, you know, have an opportunity to build and create something uh, and eventually get a team around me, which I now I'm lucky enough to have. Um, but yeah, it, it, yeah, I think I've always wanted to go down that path of, of creating something. Um, I've never been of the mindset of, you know, wanting to really work in a big company or do anything like that. It's, it's always, um, you know, it was that original contractor mindset, you know, I'm getting around, I'm getting the experiences because that's, um, uh, you know, stimulating enough to keep you excited, to keep things interested because you find yourself in situations where you'd never think you'd be in, uh, like, yeah. you know, somewhere in the Middle East dealing with this or mm. somewhere in a bunker somewhere doing that and you know that's that's the piece and when you're building a business and running uh one a consultancy company you pick and choose those very interesting customers and opportunities so you have that mm. freedom with you for that uh and that's that's more the driving force you know to to have that freedom to choose the interesting work and it's and it's uh it's either feast or famine too in consulting so i I had to find ways to augment what I was doing with like speaking engagements and, and mm. write-ups and stuff like that. But you're right. I mean, I've worked for the big 500s and, and the big companies, but there's no more like fulfillment, true fulfillment as to when like you have an idea and it becomes something that makes you money. Um, yeah. For- well, yeah. I mean, money's good, but uh, the reality is, is, um, yeah, I would still be doing the stuff if that didn't yeah, come. Yeah, yeah. But, but it is bizarre. I sit here and I'm like, okay, so Tiberium, we're, we're, we're actually, we haven't technically launched our managed service yet. So we're, we're a couple of weeks away from that. Um, we are actually on the Jenny platform that you mentioned, uh, yeah. Tanesh. Um, mm-hmm. We've been working with him on there, which has been great. Fantastic. Um, but yeah, we technically have not launched yet. Um, but so far, having this you know, new team, new people, the support, you know, that's, that's the, that's the most exciting bit. Um, so yeah, I'd oh. encourage anyone uh, either, you know, go down the contracting path and start there and build up that skill set and build up those experiences, mm. um, run with that, or yeah, just start something, start building your idea. Research, <laughs> yeah. Once yeah. you see it becoming real, it's, it's quite amazing. Yep. Can you tell us a little bit more about um, the team that you built? Because I know starting out your own company is, is really tough when you've got a small team and then you got to figure out how to scale. So tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about how you went about, you know, finding talent and building out your team. Well, That's we're still going part. through that process. So um, we haven't fully built out the team yet. We're working on it. Um, but yeah, the talent that we have found are absolutely amazing. Um, the people are so passionate. They just love what they do. And that's, that's the first thing as soon as we speak to anyone. I can tell within 10 seconds of speaking to someone if they're the right fit, if they're the right mindset. Okay, tell me how you can tell within 10 seconds. Oh, how? I don't know. It's just the way they talk about things. It's just the way... It's the passion. Um, sorry? It's the passion. I mean, yeah, you can, you you can, can tell, you when, can you, tell. When, you, when you run into somebody. Like when they start telling you about their career, you can tell if they're passionate about what they do yeah. or they can give fuck all about what you're talking about. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, we don't, we, you know, you have that conversation, you, you, you share a couple of little bits where you go, this is what we're doing. And you see where their eyes light up and you see what, what 
words trigger that and then you press on that a bit more and then you discover yes they have some really impressive skills in those areas um and then you know you might do a little technical test but actually most of the time that's not necessary because you can really tell when someone knows what they're talking about right right um, yeah I, I guess yeah you just kind of know if someone's bullshitting at the end of the day uh, <laughs> right well how do you build trust with with the team that you have right so according to a, a 2020 insider threat report companies in north america i don't know about the uk but they say that the most um they suffer that North America suffers the most from insider threats. So um, how do you go about building that trust culture at your company? And how do you, how do you know who to trust when you're bringing bringing on new team members? That's that's a fair question. I mean, we're small enough now. (laughs) We're small enough now to, um, to have that trusted small network and the rest of the team I'm working with from some, from, you know, the board and directors, I've worked with them for, you know, 10 years. Um, so that trust has been established over long periods of time of multiple experiences. Um, the new team members coming on board. Um, yeah, good question. I guess time will tell. <laughs> no, um, but as I said, yeah, it's that, it's that passion. I mean, yeah, you have to work on some shared experiences to build that trust yeah. level. And when someone comes on board and they, um, you know, start, building cool stuff and they start producing interesting things you know for me that trust level's there because they've delivered on what they said they are actually interested in this they are actually creating these things and um yeah from there i'm all good we're not gonna get into you know inside a threat monitoring people all that nah <laughs> we're, yeah. we're too small for that but you know in a, in a big company that is a challenge you know mike i you know know your background and how trust can be abused and used in ways to get into interesting places so yes very true very true not only that but i mean if you treat your employees like people you don't have to worry about all the other nonsense because they're not going to be excluded they're not going to feel like they're working on an island um my biggest thing with with a sock and people will disagree managed service providers will definitely disagree but as far as socks go it gives you a, a it's like a security blanket, right? Yeah. We can see that the alerts on the screen. Yeah. We have analysts that, that, that will call the CISO and say, Hey, look, we're under attack. But what it all boils down to, it's a staff to react to a situation. Mm-hmm. Um, IPS really failed us as an industry. We thought that was yeah, going to be yeah, cure all. It, it broke the trust. Total shit. Yeah. Positive rates. <laughs> to, to, total shit. So throw that away. Next thing comes along AI. Oh, this is a promised land book of Elijah. It didn't happen yet. Uh, we're still waiting for that to, to explode. Um, so there's a lot of failed technology and a lot of failed principles, but one thing that doesn't fail even over a period of time with IDSs, IPSs, AI, is the people in the chairs. And to me, that's the most important. Um, so we, we could do away with a sock on, on a national level and still get the same type of coverage if we had people that, that worked the shift work that weren't necessarily sock analysts, but people who cared about what they did and had a passion. Um, so I've seen that a million times, just like the military, right? So when I went to the military, I went for a specific purpose. I went because I wanted to be intelligence. I wanted that access. I wanted to do something. Um, but then you get the majority of the kids who went in after high school who just did it for paycheck. 
And that's no different in any industry. Um, we're seeing people, uh, especially vendors and recruiters promise, oh, we can give you this amount of money and you can drive this type of car. Um, I believe that one of the interventions that I did, uh, one of the questions was, what kind of car do you drive? Champ, can you remember that? Was it, it was a car question, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so they were asking me what kind of car I drove. So to them, it wasn't, it wasn't about turning life around and making different choices. It was about money and how much can I get? So, I mean, if we make ourselves like people persons and, and try to like connect with our employees in SOC, I think automation will take care of 90% of the problem. Um, the other 10% is going to be your analyst and be able to trust them and, and connect with them. Uh, because yeah, so they can step in when things do go wrong with yes. actual useful advice and actually be able to deal with it and actually help. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, not just some ambiguous alert on Dark Trace that says, check port 443. You know, it, it does nothing. Yeah. <laughs> um, so automation is great. Um, I, I use a lot of automation when it comes to like auto exploit. Um, using mass scan scripting with HP screenshot to kind of get an idea what I'm what I'm hitting. But a lot of people take, they confuse machine learning, AI, and automation. They, they think that we're trying to take over all of pen testing, so there will be no need for pen testers. That's the biggest fear. And I see Trammy's nodding her head, so I'm sure that Vonahai has had their, their questions about, are you trying to eliminate pen testers? Yeah. Um, so yeah. Are, you, are you trying to eliminate a sock, maybe, and like bring it into a bigger house, a more protected house? Hmm, trying to eliminate a sock. No, I don't know about that. <laughs> yeah, from what no. I gather, it sounds like you're really just taking the the kind of mundane daily tasks that a sock analyst would it. typically do. And yeah. then so that they can focus on other things, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's and it's leveraging the capabilities now with things like Power Automate and sort of the low, you know, the low code um, revolution that's ongoing. You know, right. you, everything's just blocks. Everything's just logic chains. And the more yeah. sophisticated logic chains you can create, the more streamlined your processes, mm -hmm. the more freed up times you have to focus on the proactive threat hunting, like I was talking about before. So it's it's yeah. nothing too sophisticated. It's just streamlining. You're right. Making things yeah. easy. Yeah. Yeah. So, Jeremy, what else do you have as far as questions go for Drew? Drew's a, Drew is a fountain of knowledge. Take advantage of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. No, I, I love everything that you're saying about automation and how you're not trying to take away a human's job. You're just helping that human be more focused at something else that a machine can't do, right? So mm. um, what you're saying, I can completely relate because that's exactly what we do at, at Vana High Security with pen mm. testing. Um, when we're automating pen testing, I'm not saying that our solution can take away a pen tester, but I'm saying that a pen tester can actually use the solution to run an automated network penetration test and pick up all the things that you would normally do using logic and scripts. Yeah. Um, that way the pen tester can focus on, you know, new exploits and new threats mm -hmm. that are coming out and figuring ways to, to like, you know, add new attack vectors. Um, so my other question for you is, um, does, does your uh, solution reduce SOC analyst um, alert fatigue at all? Yes, uh, because I've spent a good decade or so onboarding um, customers onto MSSP platforms, onto SOC services, that type of stuff. Um, you know, we, we used to spend six weeks tuning 
which is just too long. You know, you yeah. shouldn't be turning on all those use cases and alerts and analytics to begin with to need a six week tuning process. So we deal with that in two ways. We only turn on one, we only bring in events that are relevant for security analytics that align to the likely threat scenarios you'll face. So, you know, either via, via your industry through our threat intelligence, like you might be targeted by TA505 or um, other specific, you know, ransomware groups. This is the techniques they use. So here's how you can detect that. So therefore, these are the log sources you need. So we turn just those ones on. And therefore, we turn on detection rules that are related to that. Um, that knocks out, you know, 90 percent. I actually don't quote me on numbers. That knocks a large amount of the noise down. Uh, and then we have our sort of shared workspace that does lookups. So the way it works with um, Sentinel, it all sits on top of log analytics. And the customer has a workspace and we have a workspace and there's logs in there. And we do a cross workspace lookup with our high fidelity rules. And those are our rules that we've got across multiple customers that we've spent sort of years tuning and shaping uh, to be, you know, really, really relevant. So if it does fire, stuff's gone wrong. <laughs> so, you know, you don't need, you don't get that flood of alerts. Um, the other way we deal with it is um, technically we can, and this is where we're seeing a big shift uh, we, we, we can and do turn on automated responses. So, mm. <laughs> so we turn on things like isolating an endpoint, blocking a user, actual activities that should happen immediately when malware is detected on an endpoint or something like that, mm -hmm. which for years, companies have been too scared to turn on. Oh, no, we might you know, interrupt um, someone's work. Well, would you rather that than actual, you know, uh, from the drop of the calling out to a C2, then pivoting across and then you're being ransomware and double extorted. Would you rather that? Or would you rather someone um, be disrupted for 20 minutes while our automated investigation runs in the background, gives the all clear or whatever? So, you know, it's turning on things that kick in, block, react, do that um, by also providing some nice what we call buttons to do it if you're, if you're a bit too scared to turn it on by default. Um, but the stuff that we do turn on, yeah, it's highly, it's, it's very high fidelity. It's, it's the relevant stuff. It's not the, the low, you know, the high volume level of noise. Scans, yeah, yeah, yeah. Scans and all the nonsense, yeah. Um, so I'm going to do something different tonight. I'm going to ask one more question, and I'm going to open up the floor to Drew and let him fire questions at us. Um, so last question for Drew is from Ryan. Um, he says, looking into the crystal ball, what are the new emerging threats we need to be aware of, Drew? Emerging threats. Emerging. New ones. New ones. Um, hmm. Cyberpunk 2077. Yeah, all right. Well, it's again, it's still leveraging legitimate infrastructure, legitimate stuff that blends into the background noise. You know, mm. that's not going to trigger on your IOCs, your threat feeds, all of that. It's it's legitimately compromised accounts blending in. Uh, an example of that is um, the Google Sync being used as C2 that came out today or yesterday. Today, um, yeah. I noticed some news came out a few days ago where Google said they're blocking certain API access mm -hmm. um, to like Chromium and 
um, a few of the other um, Chromium-based browsers. I was like, well, that's interesting. And then I see the news break that it's because Google Sync is being used as a C2 for an extension. So I'm like, okay, right. So again, it's using that legitimate infrastructure. So the emerging aspect of it, which I guess has already emerged, is more of that. API. um, More of that legitimate stuff being used and blending into the background. Yeah, you know, I find that with I find that with a lot of uh, cloud hosted services too. You know, when you're not involved with the secure of the of the platform, like Discord, we ran into an issue with Discord uh, because of vulnerabilities that were built into their API and their webhooks. So customers are really at a disadvantage because we have to rely on that cloud providing platform to secure and, and standardize all of their loads, um, which is a freaking nightmare if you're running a podcast or doing anything social because you hook into all different types of media. Mm. Um, so yeah, like I, I can definitely see that as an emerging threat. So also AI, l- let's use that, that distorted uh, Hunter S Thompson label of AI and say uh, in the next 10 years, how do you see AI, AI being used as a nefarious purpose? Well, if, if the likes of, say, again, I'll talk about GPT-3, if that evolves to its next variation, I guess, GPT-4, um, if that can get to a state of real-time capability where the data set can be trained on the entire internet as stuff happens, mm-hmm. then what we talked about before with the kind of smoking them out, forcing the attacker's hand, that type of thing, that's going to get a lot harder because that is going to shift and change at, at internet scale. So, I mean, um, yeah, yeah if, if you start unleashing an AI capability like that, you're not up against a human with, with humans inherent flaws that, mm-hmm. um, you know, the mistakes that will eventually come. That's going to be the biggest challenge. And that is where the next level of detection capability, and this is something else I'm starting to really get into, is like detecting, you know, GANs, detecting bots, detecting if content has been created by a human or not. You know, how do we know (laughs) what it is? So it's the same thing. How do we know if we're up against a threat actor that's human or AI? That's going to be the emerging challenge if you're talking 10 years. Right. Um, That that goes back to that meme of, you know, am I a robot? And there's a robot sitting there like looking, should I check yes or no? Um, but the NSA has a really cool uh, way of determining human versus robot versus actual location versus spoof location. Um, and they utilize uh, universities around the world and made a network of these universities and these sensors to not only look at internet latency times when it comes to registering for a service or filling out a form, but also the temperature at, what the, at which the CPU at those censoring points runs at. So if there's a fluctuation in that temperature and the latency goes down, they know that more than likely it's a machine and not a human behind that function. Um, so the NSA tried to approach us to, with the company I was with to try to get us to take that technology to market. NSA has a really interesting way of sending lawyers and saying, hey, we have this technology but we can't put it into the commercial world. So we're looking at you to help us. Mm. Um, and our oversounding vote was no, because we don't know, you know, I, I knew that they use internet latency times and SAT communications to pinpoint 
convoys to take people out. So it was like, mm, you know, what are you using internet latency and fingerprint of CPU temperatures for? Like that, that's mm-hmm. a little too spooky. Um, but yeah, like my whole thing for the past, I guess, two years was AI, um, what, what we know of AI being used to produce new types of malware, new types of attacks that aren't necessarily going to be detected because as a human, I can go into, let's say something like dark trace and run a PowerShell over specific ports, specific environment variables and get it to go. No problem externally. Mm. So, and that's with AI. So if we depend solely on AI and a lot of what I'm finding is a lot of CISOs who haven't been deep in technical details and had their hands on for the past 10 years, they hear the buzzword AI got to have it, got to put it in network. It'll decrease the the amount of people I have to hire. It'll save my budget. Perfect. But what they don't understand is once you deploy that and you let those people go, you're right back where you started because you Mm -hmm. put it into a network that's already hosed. Um, So yeah, I I think AI we're on the precipice of, of like a really big deciding point for the government, for the U S government in general, do we as a country support AI and pump money into the development and really get behind it? Or do we bail on it because it could turn really, really ugly. And in the U S it's, it's kind of a, it's kind of a coin flip, right? Because we have a lot of big data companies here that, that are, that are headquartered here. Um, so there's a lot of jobs and a lot of things at stake, but at the same time, the government has hooks into all those companies. Mm. So coming from the UK side of things, what's your take on that? And then I'm going to open it up to whatever questions you have for me, Trammy or Cham. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think we're past the point of, of stopping the pumping of money into that area. I think it's, it's, it's done. It's, it's, it's on, it's happening. Um, yeah, I, I don't think, uh, I don't think it's going to be stopped at this point. <laughs> no, uh, it reminds me of, um, um, DARPA with, um, oh. their attempts with their new, you know, um, you, you roll in a rack with their competition and, you know, you say, okay, find a zero day on this and it has to fight and defend at the same time. And that I've got the machine versus machine competition going on. Yeah. Um, and if that's, and that's what three, four years ago now. Um, so the too far down the path to, to pull out the funding from that. And it's just going to get more and more and more advanced. It's just what visibility will we have of it? Who really knows? Um, yeah. But yeah, it's, it'll be interesting to see when it comes out from the pure marketing world into real world use in our industry and how it can be leveraged. Um, that's, that's the point we're, we're not at yet. Yeah. Um, but it will happen. Yeah. Give it a couple of years. And I, it will definitely happen. Totally agree. I mean, look at, look at how DARPA brought the internet to the people and civilians inside every home. So they'll be the ones to bring actual AI to the rest. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I've never done this on a podcast. I've never given the guests the, the free shots at, at the host. So here's your chance. Any questions you have for me, Trammy or Cham? Uh, I won't dodge them. I, I may duck them a little bit, but, but <laughs> I'll answer your question. Yeah. Um, okay. One from a couple of week, uh, a couple of podcast episodes ago. So you put up a challenge uh, and you put a link, there was a link to an e-commerce store. Uh, and on that, the only thing I could see about it was uh, it was replicated a legitimate one. Uh, and then 
it had um, a Discord link and another link and another link in there. What what else was going on with that? <laughs> what did okay, I miss? So, so, so in the process of, of, of those steps was a base 64 code. So if you would have grabbed the base 64, you could have cut through all of the, the other stuff and got strictly to the discord link. Right. So um, it was just to find the discord link. So I did find the yeah. other links. Okay. So yeah, something more interesting then. So, so what can you, what can you say about um, that your fancy bed links uh, in that side of uh, in the event, right? It said uh, with APT 28 and your links there, what can you, what can you tell us about that? So that was when I was a confidential informant in 2016. Um, I've always been connected to Fancy Bear, APT28, um, Sophacy, whatever their flavor of the week is. It's really the same group of people. Um, But Mm -hmm. they had approached me on some PLC data. And so the FBI became pretty interested in that and used that as leverage to, I guess, get me to to be a CI for a while, for a year. Um, I do, however, think that like the APTs get a lot of bad press and a lot of finger pointing, like immediately when there's a threat to the U.S., it can never be anybody else but Russia, you know, and you see that with someone. Mm, well, it's, it's, yeah. Yeah. So it, oh, even I was with, just going to say some, some, some of my experience on the incident ahead. response side, uh-huh. um, we've been up against mostly Chinese based uh, mm-hmm. threat actor groups and just their level of sophistication yeah. When I first came across it, just one blew my mind, and two, the the supply chain aspects of everything yes. and the layers that they would go to, mm. um, that was just absolutely insane. So what you know, we're seeing these some articles. I don't know if you could trust them around techniques changing from the traditional Russian methodologies to Chinese methodologies, and them switching around, and some doing ransomware now, some doing supply chain. I'm like, nah, I don't yeah, think so. Yeah. So, don't so, <laughs> so this is normally how it happens, like within the nation state, especially like the the Eastern Bloc and and the red states, right? So when there's an operation, everybody, whether it be North Korea, whether it be China, whether it be Russia, they're they're all aware of what's going on. It's not something that they hide from each other. Um, they're their own five eyes. Uh, so usually like when something like solar winds hits, um, a door will be opened or cracked open and other people will be invited in, not just the group that has, you know, the, the ultimate plan or that has the most laser focus or the most funding, but they allow everybody to come in from their trusted circle. Uh, and that's how it is really in any hacking group. You know, once we get the door open, we may charge for access or we may want something in trade, but we're going to give you access to that network as well. Um, with APT28, uh, to be honest with you, you know they say that this has been going on for a while. I have not yet heard anybody define a while yet, although I can tell you it's probably been going on for at least three or four years. Um, APT28 usually orchestrates the things very close to political timeframes, according to economy fluctuations. It's not, a lot of people think that, oh, these nation state hackers will just launch an attack on a country just because they don't agree with something that's being said. No, they look for for mass impact. They look for economic impact. They look for political impact. They look for civilian commercial. Um, They want to be successful, so they don't shotgun plans. Uh, You know, I know Israel, uh, when they got attacked by Hamas, by hacking group, 
their immediate response was, well, drop fucking bombs. And that's what they did. They destroyed the whole complex where these hackers supposedly were at. Mm. Probably weren't there, but, you know, either way, they, they did a kinetic attack based yeah, on... I've got, I've got some experience of that in a, in a, um, in a country which uh, is not too far away. Uh, yeah. But, yeah, when, when there was an attempted coup there, uh, the building that we had meetings in was the first one they got rocketed. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And that's, that's the way it is. Um, but with APT-28 and... So the U.S. has a love-hate relationship with Russia. Um, can't survive with them. Can't survive without them. Um, and that's just the way it is. And politically, we've always had the Republicans have been more inclined to, to, to listen. Democrats don't really care um, because they want to bring in that socialist and they want to be the ones bringing it in. They don't want Russia stepping on their toes saying, hey, this is how it's going to be. Um, but I can, I can tell you, APT-28 has been in for a while, and what we've seen so far and disclosed is probably the tip of the iceberg. I spoke to another, uh, I talked to TechStrong, and I said, eventually we're going to see, hopefully we'll see the truth where solar winds reach to as far as infrastructure, critical infrastructure, the power grid, the water treatment facilities, military organizations, um, because the U.S. government can say that's a matter of national security. We don't have to disclose that. But then they're really not being honest with the civilians saying, hey, look, they're literally in our infrastructure. They could flip a switch, put us back to the Stone Age. We have no electricity. Um, so that's, that's, that's a risk that we run. The government you know, is very hush-hush. But I can tell you that APT-28 probably didn't work alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you see that through the different types of malware and different services targeted that there were multiple groups involved, but I can tell you that they were all probably vetted by APT 28 and GRU. Um, so there's, there's my, my long extended yep. answer. And Trammy, so what, what do you enjoy most in your current role and what you do um, with, with your sort of automation head on and, and what, what things you do day to day, what's your most enjoyable aspects and where's your sort of passion lie? Yeah, so I'm still, um, I still have a lot of learning to do. I've been in cybersecurity for two years. Um, I'm head of marketing for Vana High Security, and we specialize in automated pen testing, uh, specifically network pen testing. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think the, the best part about my job is that I'm always learning something new. There's always something new to learn. So it, uh, there's technology is always changing. So I'm still, uh, I like the offensive security because obviously that, that's kind of what we do. Um, but what I really enjoy is listening to customers. So we do a lot of demos. Um, we're on a lot of scoping calls. I, I love listening to that conversation and just understanding like, what are some of the challenges that real businesses face in, in cybersecurity? And I've seen a range, right? I've seen some companies that you know, they, they know cybersecurity is important, but they don't know where to start. Um, they still need that kind of education. Uh, budget is always a big thing. And then you've got, you know, enterprise level companies where, you know, money's not an option. They just want the best um, and they'll just throw their money at everything. So um, for me, it's just it's just like a, a hybrid of different customers and their needs. And I'm still trying to find a pattern, right? Because that's my job as a marketer. And, and what I like too is that working in cybersecurity, I, I don't feel like I'm one of those manipulative type of um, 
marketers where I'm trying to like track what users are doing on our website. Like we don't do any of that stuff. Um, I'm, I'm a huge believer in ethical marketing. So for me, it's just, hey, like we, we want to help companies, you know, protect their network um, more efficiently, faster and and not, you know, pay a hefty price tag for it. So it's, mm. um, I, I really much enjoy that. I really feel like I'm, I'm actually helping businesses. Yeah, that's um, what I like when I, when I do sometimes, well, at CEO, I have to put my sales hat on and I, and I, yeah. I like the subtle sales, you know, the, 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 the trusted aspects of it coming from a technical person or coming from someone who's not pushing hard. They're just, yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Involved and find out how you can do interesting things. Exactly, yeah. exactly. That's one thing I love about the company is that we don't we don't have like a very aggressive sales tactic for us. Uh, or what we want to do is we want to listen, right? So asking the right questions and then listening to what the customers are saying that you know they're having challenges with, and then to find out if if we're a good fit to do business together, you know. Mm. And if they're not, we have lots of partners that we recommend them to. Um, yeah. So we have a lot of MSP, MSSP partners um, that, you know, we have on hand. So if a customer needs a service that we don't provide, you know, we, we connect them to a lot of those partners. And it's really about building that community and working together because, you know, it's hard for the small startups to kind of compete with, with some of the, the bigger players out there. And Right. Finally, uh, Cham. So what type of skills uh, are the people you're working with feel that they need you know, more experience and what areas do they feel they're kind of lacking at this point that, pe- that they need to when they're going for getting jobs or going for training that um, they feel they're just not they don't have the experience in yet? What specific areas there are they are they sort of being asked about? Um. So, Champ, go over like the 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 interviews and, and the positions that people are looking for as far as recruiting goes. Because you have yeah, a, what, are, what, are, what are people asking for at this um, point? There's a mixture depending on what type of company you apply for. Some of them are like assessment based, so you come in um, for like more or less the whole day, sometimes nine to four, and they assess how you work on independently um, and how you work as a group. Um, sometimes, uh, so it's more the people skills, the more how they're working, how they're doing things. Yeah. 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 And sometimes, but, uh, yeah, go on. And the biggest problem with that too, I don't mean to interrupt, but the biggest problem is that you have, we, we talked about this in the last podcast, when you walk into interview and you have five people who have, you know, specific expertise and they're interviewing one candidate and beating this candidate down as if he should know all five or six, you know, principles Um, that leaves a really bad taste. And I've seen that, especially in U S companies, they want the best of the best of the best. So, but what they understand is you put that pressure on people and you, they already see that you're going to be riding on their shoulders. It's not a good, not a good environment. Um, But yeah, I mean, And it all goes back to like, so Cham and I have had like long discussions about the way the the industry is going as far as hiring. Um, And we've all, I've seen it with her trying to apply out of school to companies that need entry level, but five, five years of entry level experience. I mean, if you, if you're entry level after five years, you should probably find another industry because it's not going so well for you. I was going to say five years into my (laughs) career, I was... <laughs> what was I doing five years in? Um, yeah, it's probably like a senior yeah. network 
something. Right. I don't know. <laughs> but, that, but that's entry level for a lot of these companies, especially wow. in Europe. It's like, oh, and we ran, so we started a company called CryptoSec and we decided to launch that. Um, I had a phone call from a company that wanted a pen test and they said, are you Crest? And I was like, first of all, I have no idea what the hell you're even saying right now. Um, I'm not from here. I'm not Crest or whatever certification it is, but I do come with a loads of experience and successful companies. So, you know, we, we can continue, but if you require Crest, I'm not your guy. But then I found out later how much Crest accreditation costs. Mm-hmm. And it was not more of a, do you have this skill set? It was, are you willing to put forth that much more money to make your company successful? And I thought, you know, the certification industry as a whole has taken advantage of all of our years of experience and really made it difficult for anybody to maneuver or to get one leg up. So when I was CISO of a company, I started looking at what do I need to do to, to validate my role? Because I, I knew th- this company was not on the up and up. I knew that they were using me for, for exposure, for PR or whatever. But I thought, you know, my next role, I want to be valued for being a CISO. I, I want to be like legit, not just a name. I want to be somebody that can, that can perform this. Um, so when I went out and looked at certifications, what I found is that they'll, they'll give you a cert for being a CISO, but you're going to pay for that too. Yep. A high amount of money. So really, are we paying to play the game? Um, like semi-pro footballers are are we being recruited to into the big leagues? You know, it just, it seems really weird, especially here in the U S like we don't have that, that whole issue with hiring people for entry level. There's a lot of entry level here, but in the UK, it seems that that's been locked down and you're not getting in unless you're willing to pay the price to get into the game, which I think is very elitist and very, uh, you know, it's blocking of, of new creativity. Um, and I think probably, and this is my opinion, I'm probably going to get shot down by the people who do certs and I'm okay with that. But I think when certs came on the scene to validate people's value within a company, they run an entire industry. Well, yeah, that's, that's, yeah. So the certs, uh, I've got a conflicting view of because certs got me where I am in reality initially mm-hmm. because it got the key words to get the right, right person attention give you the chance to get on the call to then talk and prove yourself so uh, yeah and, and I started with certs but yeah I was lucky I was I had a break from them for at least five years or so but I'm sadly back on the cert cycle now with some new <laughs> new other interesting things but it's actually now more more because there's some interesting other things coming out but yeah for entry level yeah are they really needed but if you don't have them how are you going to get the right keyword to get the attention to exactly and who and who has enough money to sit at home during the pandemic and take boot camps and pay for this stuff when they don't have a job? You know, it's like Especially if you want the real good stuff like sans courses or whatever, it's like yeah. thousands and thousands of pounds, <laughs> man. So so sans courses, when they still offered to take the test online to challenge exams, I think I spent like four grand challenging like five exams in one day. And I passed them and they said, you, you know, we're going to put you before an audit committee to make sure you didn't cheat. And I thought, wait a minute, you're offering these exams. I paid for it. I passed. Now you want to question me? Mm. 
they, they eventually gave me the, the certs, but it was like, if I can go on and challenge these exams without paying like the $10,000 for boot camp, you guys are running a racket. Like someone's making lots of money here and it's not me. Um, so the whole, I think certification service purpose, as far as like showing people are willing to put forth the effort. But when you tell me that they need a bachelor's in computer science or five years experience plus certs, it tells me that you don't really want someone entry level. You want someone entry level that can carry on like 10 responsibilities and get paid for one. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I tend to tell people, you know, those types of companies, take a look at it. This is your interview just as much as is their interview. True. So when they interview you, have your questions ready, you know, be ready to ask them what their long-term plan is, what their, what their roadmap is for a SOC. And I can tell you that most CISOs will respond with not really sure um, because it's such a ever evolving, like daily structure that it's hard to put a pulse on, um, especially with the pandemic. I, I, I see that question there from Ryan saying, you know, advice for someone finding their niche. So yeah. it's, it's quite easy, really. You just, Build a lab, play, do, yes. <laughs> yes. do you know, create something. Um, you know, get a get a free um, hundred pound credit on Azure, or um, spin up a server, dedicated server somewhere, and just yeah. build stuff. Run VMs, yep. create the lab, and then see what you find most interesting and run with it. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. So I did that in Essex with, with Cham. I showed her, you know, different types of attacks and we built all kinds of like virtual boxes. And, and that's the only way to really learn because nobody's going to sit down and say, okay, here's a book and I'm going to show you how it's like academically done because more than likely that academically done is not effective when it comes to actually teaming, teaming events. And it's also, it's not just doing CTFs either. Yeah. Because that's not going to teach you the fundamentals no. of networking on servers, on how to, um, you know, boot off and operate, how to build an operating system and run stuff and share files from here to here. And the challenges you get of when you have a lab having to do yep. all those pieces, yep. because those fundamental skills of networking and infrastructure uh, what's going to really help you down the track because you have all those layers of knowledge there yeah. and that's critical. You know, what really boosted my career and really got me started was actually just going home and installing snort and deploying snort across my network. That taught me so much stuff yeah. about networking, how things communicate and signature based learning. I mean, stuff like that, like you can learn it in a book, but I'm the type of person who has to see it, put my hands on it, actually do it. And I think most people in our industry have to have that, that, that tangible. We have to see the ones and zeros. We have to see, you know, do it, doing a check config, seeing that everything is working the way it's supposed to be working. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's interesting. So outside of, outside of work, Drew, I know you don't have much time outside of work, but when you do, what, do you, what does Drew like to do for Drew to get away from the industry to, to reset and get a fresh perspective? Uh, well, I don't. I'm constantly always on. Um, my idea of switching off is maybe reading a book that's slightly uh, still on topic. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I used to, when we could, you know, do a lot of travel, get around, um, see some interesting places, um, you know, try and get away that way. Um, but yeah, it's very rare for me to reset. Um, 
I, I don't reset. I've been I've been accused of being a robot many a yeah. times. <laughs> what happens yeah. when you run a company, right? Well, that's right. But even before that, you know. Um, yeah. But no, I um, you know I take my dog out for for big walks, you know, and and um, in the forests and places as much as possible, and try and see some nature. I think that's always very very important. Um, yeah, that's that's the only real resetting that I can do when I can. <laughs> yeah, I fight that same battle, and especially like I I, I started a company back in two thousand eight called Black Cell Security. Ran that for a while. Um, started one in, in London. Worked on that for a bit. But I, f- I find it's hardest once you get past like the actual starting of companies and sitting on the boards of companies and being on the advisory board, because you think that you can be on an advisory board for three or four different companies. And it becomes this huge like biological monster that, that takes up more time than, than what you have. So enjoy being CEO. I, I do. I'm, I'm so envious of, of being able to start something and bring it to a level of importance, right? Um, so we've been watching Tiberium at Jenny and Ned for, for a while, um, as well as, you know, through social media and, and our connection or whatever. And I really dig what you guys are doing. And Ryan, I mean, you have a, you have a gym with Ryan. Ryan's a great guy. And, and uh, you know, with He's ISSA, a- him and, him and uh, Luke were just amazing. Mm. No, I think with Ryan, um, you know, because he's come from – he actually came from the recruitment world. Um, so he was the only recruiter that I ever trusted who, you know, technically knew what he was talking about there. Yeah, um, sure. That's the thing. Once you've got that trust established with someone, it's yeah. good to build things with, with, you know, those types of people. That's, that's the best thing. And that's important, man, because like, you know, coming from my background and seeing the, the hacker wars and, and the different, you know, fighting within groups and stuff, same thing with corporate world. You know, you're going to get people who try to slam doors and people who try to attack you for for being successful. Mm. Um, my first shot at that was a couple of weeks ago. Uh, at first, I didn't handle it too well because I was so frustrated. Um, but I realized that that's going to happen. Uh, and road, you know, roadblocks and speed bumps are going to pop up. But it's how you handle diversity that makes you successful. And I think you and Tiberium. Yeah, well, the last few weeks, there's been a lot of things that are popping up and it's just because everything's piling up. You know, we're heading towards this launch. Everything's just going more and more and more. And yeah, every day there's just some big challenge that we get through and it's, yeah. that's, what it's, that's what it's about. But there's always something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and it's usually that one quote from that one person in that one tough situation that you carry with you after you get through it and you've made yeah. it to the other side. Um, so I, I, I keep a journal of those quotes that pop up at just the right opportune times so that when I face something equally or, or similar, I can revert back to that journal and say, oh, well, you know, this is how I got past that. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a very interesting, complex biological industry. I mean, we work like a human body system does. And, you know, there's failures here and there, but, you know, I think the future is pretty bright when we have CEOs like you and, and companies like Tiberium and, and platforms that, that we can depend on. So with that being said, I appreciate your time, Drew. If anybody has any questions, last questions for Drew, uh, pop it into my chat and I'll ask him. Um, if not, I did do a hack today, but it, it's from the Social Engineers Toolkit uh, and it's really kind of uh, basic. Um, we can go over it if you want. Wayne has a question. 
All right, what's Wayne's question? Uh, it's coming up. So while we're doing that, I'll, t I'll tell you about the hack that I did. It's a QR code. Basically, I coded a QR, injected a PowerShell script, or actually it points to a PowerShell script, and then hosted on a web server. You scan it with uh, Android phone, and it forces the download of the APK and gives you interpreter access. So it's really just an expansion of an earlier hack that I did just using a QR code because not a lot of people actually will look at that QR code. They'll just scan it and jump right on it. So, you know, 50% Android, 50%, you know, Apple, I'm going to get 50% shell access to whoever scans it. Okay. I stop right there. Yeah. Okay. So are you saying I shouldn't be trusting QR codes? Yes, absolutely. Still, it does have a dependency on your phone trusting third-party APK files or third yes. non yes. yes, but that that people have that enabled. So yeah. yeah. Okay, so I know to hover over a link to check a URL before clicking on it. What do I do to see if I should trust a QR code? So QR code on an Android phone. When you take your camera and you put it on a QR code, it'll tell you: Do you want your browser to open up this link? Now, whether you understand the link or know it's legit, that's up to the user. But most users, not in our industry, I can probably, social engineer, probably at least 80% to scan the QR code and just install whatever. Um, so it's just another way of like delivering the, the link to the payload. Yeah. Um, nothing spectacular. Really, there's... Now QR codes are actually finally in common use because they have to be because we can't touch anything when we're out in public so. <laughs> exactly exactly Good so point. i'm trying to come up i'm trying to come up with different ways to obfuscate code and to deliver shell code um, without actually having to be on a system or just in your everyday like operations through grocery stores or whatever so i can go through and you know if you want to restock your shelves with milk or whatever i can slap my own qr code on there and we can get that milk flowing so flight tickets, um, yeah, man, fuck y'all on flight tickets. I just wish I had a passport. Um, <laughs> so flight tickets are another interesting thing. Um, so each one of those boarding passes are printed on the fly and they're kind of randomly generated um, based on the flyer's details. So that's a little hard to predict. However, if someone gets there early enough and gets their boarding pass and maybe I have eyes on it or can take a photo, I could potentially beat them to the security line. Um, but that would be building a, an ID on the fly and, and being legit with their boarding pass code would be very difficult. Um, a lot of people do post their tickets straight on social media. Yes, yes, they do. <laughs> yes, they do. Uh, I'm not, I'm not condoning people go look for those, but yeah, people will post their entire life on, on social media. Um, so much info from those. Okay, so uh, to embed a remote shell and embed that into a QR code to deploy at restaurants. So I wasn't thinking more like restaurants. I was thinking more of random stickers placed here and there because people like that level of, I guess, unknowing or mystique. They'll, they'll scan a QR code on a sticker on a light pole before the before they will go into a grocery store and scan the QR code of a, of a of an actual like tangible piece of food, um, because it carries that 
what is this? I've never seen this before. Curiosity. Um, and that feeds into a lot of people's uh, psyche. They, they have to know and they won't be happy until they know it. So that's why I get into more obfuscated stuff because it's, it's easier to pass over because people are so very curious as to what's going on in the world around them. Um, and Ryan just posted, I'll, I'll post all of these in an email and send it out to all the listeners um, afterwards, but we have links about boarding passes, et cetera. Um, okay. Uh, Drew, any questions for us regarding the haunted house or the podcast or just in general? Uh, I'm going to wrap yeah, it up. So, yeah. What is, what is coming up? Who, who, who are you? Who are you? Who's your next guest? Ben? The next guest is actually Alton. And Alton's from Vonahai, and, and he's going to talk to us about automated pen testing and, and kind of the awesome. industry in general. Um, dude, you're more than welcome to sit in on any conversation we have, whatever podcast. This will be uploaded to TechStrong and will play probably next week or the week after, Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday during their digital anarchist uh, episodes every day. So, Excellent. Yeah. So hopefully that'll help with Tiberium and, and, Spread the word even more for you. Whatever we can do to help. Chammy, you good? Yeah, yeah, I'm good. Yeah, Cham, are we good? Yeah. Okay. All right, I'm going to go ahead and close this out. And uh, Drew, start- thank you so much. Absolutely, you Drew, you. you've been really? awesome. Yeah, <laughs> thanks for answering awesome. all my really questions and just just you know yeah. sharing your knowledge. And awesome. merchandise. Uh, there's a a link tree in the discord with all the merchandise um, donations, whatever you guys want to do to support what we do to make this free to everybody every week. Um, Feel free to donate or help out whatever time you have or whatever you can. And drew, I look forward to talking on discord and maybe we can circle back at some point after the launch and and talk about how things are going. Last question for drew. When, when is the launch? When, when should we look forward to the launch? Uh, Let me check the calendar. Uh, 16th of February. 16th of february okay we're close we're close so so i'm expecting you on the on the podcast in march early march to talk about no problem at all (laughs) all right man all right talk to you soon thanks guys for showing up and thanks for listening bye everyone bye Bye, guys. guys bye